Now we're going to be looking at the first four verses of the book of Jude. It's a heavy book, huh? Quite a description of certain types of people. The kind of description you never want to be able to be said of you. And by God's grace, it uh, will not be. It's a book of conflict. See, in the Beatitudes, Jesus, uh, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And elsewhere, Jesus also said in the same book, in the same gospel of Matthew, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Is this Jesus contradicting himself? No, he is God. He does not do that. He is, after all, the same God who inspired Solomon to write a thousand years earlier in Ecclesiastes that there's a time for war and a time for peace. The question is, do you know the difference? Do you know when the time for war is? Do you know when it's time for peace? Because taking God's word seriously, there is a time for both. Doing whatever it takes to maintain peace when it's the wrong time for peace is not a Christian thing to do. Of course, especially if you've rubbed shoulders with certain Christians on Facebook, you'll find out that there's pretty lame and unchristian ways to go about handling conflict. Uh, and that's not uh, to say, though, that all conflict is in and of itself ungodly. Jude would have us think actually the opposite. And in the first century when he was writing, in the late 60s, probably, uh, Jude made this pretty clear in the small letter that he wrote to Jewish and Gentile Christians. In a particular church, we're not told which one, we're not told what region, just a, a church here in the New Testament world that he was familiar with, that he administered in. And as we read these four verses that we're focusing in on today, I'd put it to you that Jude's message, both for his whole book, which is also the message of these verses because they serve as the theme verses for the whole book, is that Christians are to fight for the faith in godliness. To fight for the faith in godliness. And to do so because God has saved them and will keep them. We're to fight for the faith in godliness because God has saved us and will keep us, as we just sang. So as we keep that in mind, let me read to you again verses 1 through 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. At the center of our passage today is a high view of God, because who we understand God to be will change everything about what we believe and how we live. The view of God that Jude presents before us is not a view of a God who is hoping to be accepted by people that he really just wants to love him. This is not a view of a God who is powerless against sin, who is hoping that evil will be eradicated but can do nothing about it. This is a view of God who is sovereign. A God who is holy and in whose holiness he will judge the wicked. He is the sovereign God who is mighty and especially mighty to save sinners like us 
who deserve that judgment. He is the sovereign God who is love and in whose love he actually does save sinners like us through Jesus Christ who died for us and rose again. And Jude begins his letter by considering the blessings that are given to Christians who are saved by this sovereign God. And so we come to the first two verses which we can consider under the heading blessings of the sovereign God. The first thing we see here is, as at the beginning of most New Testament letters, an identification of who is writing. So Jude lets the people who are reading this letter know who he is, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. He's a brother of James and a slave. If you'll see in your footnote in the ESV text under the word servant, it also says slave, which is doulos, which is a very important New Testament term which indicates that the person is, a full, um, is fully owned by the person who is the slave owner. And we have our connotations of that, of course, um, with our American history, but we'll get into that in a moment. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is the fact that Jude identifies himself as a brother of James. That helps us narrow down the field of who it is that we're talking about. There were many Judes in the New Testament. Jude is our English word that translates a Greek Judas, which itself is referring to a Hebrew, Judah. So Judah, Judas, Jude. Anybody with the name Judas in the New Testament is a candidate for writing this letter. But we know that this Jude is a brother of James. And the only James that we see in the New Testament who's so well known that he doesn't need any other qualifier than to drop his name is, Jude, uh, is James, the apostle of the New Testament church in Jerusalem, who took that prominent role of leadership, who himself was a half-brother of Jesus. And we say half-brother of Jesus because God the Father, in the miracle of the incarnation by the Holy Spirit, while Mary was a virgin, granted her the conception of Jesus, who has no earthly father, who was born of man through his mother Mary, and is the very Son of God. Which is why all his brothers born from Joseph and Mary are half-brothers. And James, who is also the brother of Jude, is a half-brother of Jesus which means that who is Jude's half-brother? Jesus. This is Jesus' own brother who grew up with Jesus, who knew Jesus, who saw Jesus from the time he was born until uh, you know, Jesus ascended into heaven. And if we know that, then the second thing we know about Jude is that he is a transformed brother of Jesus. In the New Testament Gospels, we read of Jesus' brothers not following and embracing Jesus throughout his ministry, but mocking him making fun of him, not believing in him. We know where this guy comes from. We grew up together. They weren't all in until after Jesus' resurrection. In John 7, 2 through 5, we read this interaction with Jesus' brothers. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. But by the time we received this letter from Jude, he is a changed man, still brother of the Lord, but not at all in the same way he was before. He doesn't identify himself by dropping the fact that Jesus is his other brother, so you better listen up. No, he identifies himself as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ because when he came to faith in his brother, he realized, this isn't just my brother, this is my God. 
This is my Lord, and that has massive implications. Who am I but a servant of the Most High God? And so he calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ, who, in our context, as we see at the end of verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the sovereign Lord that Jude serves. And that status of servanthood to Jesus, of slavery to Jesus, has two significant aspects that are true for any of us who would identify with Jude as slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first is the privileges of being a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to understand slavery not in our American history context, but in our Greco-Roman context. And back then, a slave of somebody who was a great lord, let's say Caesar, would actually have higher status, higher privilege, greater honor than a commoner who was free and a slave of nobody. Because as they went about their master's business, whose authority was stamped on their activity? Caesar's. If you take somebody who is inestimably higher than Caesar, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you then identify yourself in truth as a slave of that one, what higher privilege could we have among all the created beings of the universe? Jude was a very privileged man to be a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was greater than any Caesar or any Lord that had ever existed or ever would exist. And the second aspect of slavery to a great Lord also is the responsibility. With great privilege comes great responsibility. And when your master is Jesus Christ, the responsibility we have is full obedience and devotion. Slaves, for all the honor that they had as slaves of great lords, were also legally owned by their masters and dependent on their masters for their entire sustenance and livelihood. They were duty-bound to obey their masters in everything. Just as we who follow the Lord Jesus Christ acknowledge that he is, in fact, Lord. And that actually means something. That means he gives the orders, we obey. He calls the shots and we say, okay, great. Jesus is Lord, is the fundamental profession of our faith ever since the inception of the church. And it's true for us today, as true as it was for Jude And if Jude was a changed man when he came to embrace his Lord, then the question is raised, how has your life changed since you have come to Christ? Jude is a great picture for us of somebody who is, before coming to faith in Jesus, just like every one of us, perhaps hostile, perhaps indifferent, but either way, not treating Jesus with the honor that he deserves. And yet when we come through faith in him, everything changes. How has it changed for you? We have the greatest privilege because we serve the greatest Lord. And just like slaves back then, so is it with us now that those who come to faith in him become defined by following Jesus. This is our business. This is our life. It will look different for each one of us, and yet it will be the same thing, lordship to Jesus Christ in our context And Jude focuses next on the believers that he's writing to. He identifies himself a servant or slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, brother of James. And then he turns the corner and looks to whom he writes, to those who are called. We could call these people those who are blessed by the Sovereign Father. Those who are blessed by the Sovereign Father. Those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. He looks at who they are and what they are. Who they are and what they are. Who they are is defined first as the called. This is the big idea. 
of their identity. They are the called out ones. Out of all the world, these are the ones who have been called by their sovereign father. Called out by God, not, not, not in an American kind of way. Um, I don't know if you've ever been a political campaign caller during election season and you get this list of numbers and you have to call up and you're, you're saying, hey, I'm just calling to commend this candidate to you and I uh, hope you come out and vote for him. There's a lot of great things about him and this would be really great if we can make this happen. This is not the kind of call that, uh, that happens where half the people hang up and the other half don't really care because they just want you off the phone. No, this is the call from the sovereign God. This is a call that does something. This is a call that is a royal summons from a sovereign father who has handpicked each person that he calls because he loves them. This is the great idea at the heart of Romans 8, 28 through 30, that favorite of all passages that so many people treasure for good reason. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice what is true of every single person who is part of this group of the called. God has had his eye on them since before they were a thought. From before creation happened, the Father has known them, has predestined them, has decided to save them when they deserved no saving. And he has called them out as the Holy Spirit applies to their hearts the work of Christ, as he gives them an enlarged heart, as Pastor John has been preaching about for the past few weeks from Psalm 119, who changes them so that they embrace the only Lord who has saved them, the Master Jesus Christ, and declares them righteous, which is what he means when he says that they are justified, that there is legally no right for God to hold against them anything because God the Son has made an end of all their sins at the cross of Jesus. And then, so sure and complete is this work that he is able to look into the future with certainty and say that they are glorified which means that this sin presence that we struggle with still, even after coming to faith in Jesus, is going to be no more. And we know for sure on the weary days when all we can do is put one foot in front of the other in our walk with Jesus, that one day it will not be that way anymore because sin will be gone. So much certain is it that he is able to look at it as something already completed. He has also glorified. He's making all things new. These are the people to whom Jude writes. You see why we're calling them blessed by God the Father? Those are some great blessings. And then he looks at what they are. Two words he uses to describe those who are called. Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Beloved and kept. I'd like to draw your attention to the word beloved. That is in some very ancient manuscripts and the majority of our translations have it there, but I think the majority of the the manuscripts, the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament that we have, over the 5,000 of them, uh, they actually have the word sanctified in there. And I, I propose that that is probably the original reading. Those sanctified in God the Father. Now, whichever way you would believe, whether it's sanctified or beloved, both are true. God loves those that he sanctifies, and he sanctifies those he loves. But think of the context of this letter. He's putting 
those who are called over against these false teachers who are bringing in destructive heresies by their unsanctified lifestyle and their wickedness. It's quite a contrast. One of the hallmarks of those who are called is that they are sanctified by God the Father who chose them and called them as he brings them all along that process to be glorified. He is making them like Jesus. That's the first aspect of what they are as the call. And the second is that they are kept for the Father. It says, kept for Jesus Christ. He's probably referring to the day when Jesus comes back, the day of Jesus Christ, when he comes back to take his people to himself. That Jesus, we are being kept for. And aren't you glad? Have you ever struggled with wondering whether or not you had blown it just enough to where the Father is done? Have you ever borne the burden of feeling like you might have lost your salvation? This is a good word for you. This is a good word for me. Because it shows us that when we have been called out by a sovereign God, he is just, it happens to be strong enough, and his gospel happens to be complete enough, that when Jesus said it is finished, he meant it, and he has got you. He has got you. You're kept by your sovereign Father who will never let us go. And how could it be any other way for those who are chosen and made holy in Jesus? We are safe in his hands, the called out ones who are made holy and who are kept. And the means by which he keeps us safe are communicated to us in the blessings he explores in verse 2. May the mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. These are the blessings of our sovereign God to us. Mercy and peace and love. Do you all remember your multiplication tables? I think it was third grade for me. It was just like a worldview shift. Like, what? We've been doing addition. That's great. Two plus two equals four. That's pretty cool. Four plus four equals eight. I like that. Eight is better than two of whatever it is, especially if it's toys. But then you get into multiplication, and all of a sudden, your world gets bigger. Two times two still equals four. I'm not seeing much of a difference here. Four plus four equals eight, but four times four, that's 16. 16 times 16? Don't ask. I don't know. My iPhone's down there. But all I know is that this gets pretty big pretty quickly. Mercy and love and peace all added together, that's a pretty cool thing. But when those things start being multiplied by each other, you have the equation for a little something called amazing. That's a theological term. There's a reason we sing of amazing grace. Because God, each and every day, is multiplying to us his mercy as we come to him in confession. And he reminds us, your sins are done away with, dear one. He multiplies his peace to us as he reminds us that we are reconciled with him through his son, Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can be at peace among ourselves through Jesus, no matter how different we are. And he's multiplying his love to us as he's speaking tenderly of his affections. This is the Father, after all, the same Father in the Old Testament that so many people wrongly and tragically believe was just sitting there grumpy with his people until Jesus would come along and make everything right. No, this is the Father, the Father from Genesis to Revelation, who pours out his affections on you, so much so that he came up with this plan of redemption in the first place. And so we sing, what more? What more could he ever do? He's not in the business of addition. He's in the business of multiplication. 
for you. Do you wholly trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope in life and death? Is he all that you are banking on to stand before a holy God one day? Do you follow him? Because if you do, then you are experiencing the most epic multiplication equation known to man as God the Father pours out his eternal love on you because he wants you. This is the love of the God you read of in your Bible. This is the love of the Father who every day calls you to be near to him, to hold you. Do you see how precious a thing it is to be part of the Christian faith? Oh, it's so precious. To belong to the Lord Jesus. I hope you see it. Because if you don't, then this next part, when we turn a corner and Jude all of a sudden goes from this tender word about the love of God to this resounding battle cry that he gives in Jude 3, it's not going to make much sense. Christians are a fighting people, rightly understood. A loved people, a called people, a cherished people, and a fighting people. And if you've ever been in a fight, you know it is exhausting. Think about how exhausting it is to have a relationship that's not right, especially in your own home. It's just, oh, when can this be over? This friction is draining me. I'm going to bed two hours earlier than I normally do. Why? I don't know. I'm just really tired. Conflict is draining. And if all we're doing is resting in our own resources and fighting just because that's what we're supposed to do, as he explains, then uh, it's not going to last very long. It's just a poor motivation. But when you see the love of the Father and the glory of his gospel and his son at stake in the fight, as Jude makes pretty plain, then all of a sudden we've got an incredible motivation to do what we're being called to do. And this is the call to fight. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. See, friends, Jude didn't send, uh, he didn't write, he didn't start out to write a letter that was so condemnatory toward these false teachers. He wasn't eager to go and sit there and stick it to those other guys. No, he wanted to write an encouraging letter to about our common salvation. He wanted to remind them of the glorious gospel so that they would be refreshed as they read it. That was his intention. I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary, a word that means I was fully obligated. When I heard about what was going on at the church there, I didn't have another choice. I couldn't write the letter I wanted to write. I had to write this letter because this is the word you need. You need it right now because there's a lot at stake and you guys are in danger. I need to call you as a battle commander, he's saying, to get on the horse and charge, however big the enemy is, because of what's at stake. I found it necessary to write to you, appealing or urging in the strongest possible language for you to contend, to contend for the gospel. That same urgency to fight is present in the church today, as we're going to see in a few minutes. Whenever the gospel is at stake in the church, the call that Jude sounded 2,000 years ago is sounded once again through the scriptures and the Holy Spirit, and it rings as loud and clear today as it did 2,000 years ago. It's a call to fight, not using physical aggression. Some of you going to walk out of here and punch somebody if I don't say that, okay? Oh, Pastor Rick said it. No, we're not. that's not the weapons of our warfare. 
but to vigorously, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, to oppose every idea raised up against the knowledge of God and to take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's where the warfare is. That's what spiritual warfare looks like. And friends, it is everywhere. Which brings us from the urgency of the fight to the nature of the fight. What is this fight about? What's it look like? Well, we see it in the word contend. I, I was appealing to you to contend for the faith. This is actually a sports analogy for those who love that type of thing. A sports analogy in the New Testament. Go figure. It's not something that 20th century preachers came up with. Jude says contend, and that was the idea. Uh, you'd go and see these Roman athletes training in the arena, training for the Olympic Games, training hard, breaking a sweat, breaking down their bodies so that they could be built up stronger because there was an important event coming up, and they wanted to be ready. Not everybody's a jock for the nerds. If you wanted a, a cinematic picture of what this looks like, truly, I know because you're a nerd, you've already seen Avengers Infinity War, the highest grossing film in box office history. And, and if you've seen that movie, then you know that you've got all these superheroes, any one of which are amazing by themselves, all banded together using 110% of their energy to fight this common enemy that is about to destroy the universe. That's a pretty good picture of what contending looks like. The original Greek put on screen. But this is way bigger than Avengers Infinity War. Jude is calling for contenders to wage an eternity war because there has never been a battle with more at stake, with greater implications, with eternal results than the one he is calling God's people to wage. Do you care about sound doctrine enough to break a sweat for it? Because that's what Jude's saying. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. To break a sweat. To know that the glory of our Lord, whom we love, who died for us, is at stake. When we fight for the faith, we're fighting for the glory of Christ. Now that is a motivation that can sustain by God's grace. Which brings us to consider the object of the fight. What exactly is it that we're fighting for? Everybody would like to know that, right? If you're going to go fight for something, you need to know what you're fighting for. And Jude tells us it's the faith. It's the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. And the word the there is critically important because it's telling us that we're not just talking about, uh, you know, your personal trust in Jesus, my personal trust in Jesus. How's your walk with Jesus going? How's your faith doing, brother? Those are good and important aspects of faith, our own trust and walk with our Lord. But Jude is talking about the faith, capital F. He's referring to the gospel doctrine that has not changed in 2,000 years, which was handed down to us by the apostles in the New Testament, that once it was written, it has never been added to. And so the Mormons that say, you, we need to embrace this other truth that has come to us from Joseph Smith and the tablets and all that, if you can believe that, we could say, no, this faith was once for all handed down to the saints. It doesn't change. There's a huge cult going around Yakima, door to door. They've come to my door twice in the past couple of years called the Church of God. The Bible teaches that, the, that God the Father also is married to God the Mother. And our salvation is in God the Mother too. No, I'm sorry, that's foreign to the New Testament. It's foreign to the scriptures. And this is the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15 describes the church as a very particular guardian entity. Look what Paul says to Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, 
but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The gospel truth, gospel doctrines that make us Christians. Pillar and buttress of the truth. We are a guardian entity, whatever else we are. And it is up to the church, by God's grace and his power, to make sure that that faith is not allowed to be corrupted. In Galatians 1, 8 through 9, we see what strong language the Apostle Paul uses to describe this very same thing as he's addressing a similar type of threat in the churches of Galatia. As people were coming in preaching a gospel that was foreign to the one they had received. These, these people were coming into Galatian churches and saying that you had to start with Jesus and then be uh, growing in Jesus, being continuing to keep your salvation and finishing it by doing works, by being obedient to the law. Essentially the same type of thing that we see in Roman Catholicism doctrine. And he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, what was the one we preached? We are saved by faith alone, by God's grace alone, by Christ alone. That's the gospel. And this is the gospel we preach to you. And if anyone preaches another one, let him be accursed. Paul doesn't make any mince words about it. This word accursed is saying this person who is intentionally messing with, destroying, undermining the gospel, he needs to be in hell because that's the only place fit for someone who refuses the only salvation that God has given. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed starting to see why Jude calls us to fight, aren't you? It seems like this is a pretty big deal, especially when people come into the house of God teaching something else. If you're part of the church that has been entrusted with the truth, then friend, make sure that you are doing your part by knowing your faith by knowing sound doctrine and availing yourself of opportunities to grow in your knowledge of sound doctrine. Because friends, a building starts with one stone being connected with another stone, with another stone, and it goes up from there. When you've got a stone out of place or very weak, crumbling, all of a sudden all sorts of things can get in, okay? So the strength of the church in this comes down ultimately to each one of us defending our faith by knowing our faith so that we know what threats to our faith look like. Because friends, most, most of these uh, threats that come into the church and undermine gospel doctrine, they don't come in through the front doors. This isn't a, a mass theological shooting. This is one person at coffee with another person asking them, hey, have you ever seen this particular scripture in this light? Because that's what I'm seeing. And all of a sudden, a little bit of error gets took, put in with a mostly truth, and then a little more error creeps in, and a little more, and all of a sudden, this is, this is Satan's strategy. Truth, 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 error, truth, truth, error, truth, 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 error. The composite picture, you end up drifting by enough degrees to where you've got another gospel altogether. And again, it doesn't come through the front doors. This is down to you and me considering each one of ourselves as if we were the only contenders for the faith, that it, if, if it gets past me, it's going to infiltrate everyone, 
That's an attitude that would be pretty healthy to take, but resting at night knowing that your arms are linked with mine and hers and that Jesus is at the heart of all of it. The Holy Spirit preserves the church and we can fight and sleep really well knowing that those things are true. As we move into verse four, we've seen that those who are saved and kept by the sovereign God are called to fight to preserve the gospel by which they're saved. And we've seen that the fight for the gospel is an intense fight. It's a sweat-breaking fight. And we've seen from Jude that whenever gospel doctrine is threatened, there's the urgency and the need to fight that day, not tomorrow. And now we're going to look at why. Why there's a need to fight for the glory of Christ and the gospel. Jude tells them why he's writing this letter instead of the one he intended. He says, for, which means because, because certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Friends, we need to fight because of strangers. You know, as teacher kid, stranger danger, well, it's true in the church too. Uh, strangers to the faith, people who come in with a smile on their face but have the intention, who creep in unnoticed because they've got the right sounding words, they've got the friendly smile, the Christian greeting in the name of Christ, who know that what they're about is not what we're about, but they're about something that is foreign to the gospel of scripture. Certain people have crept in unnoticed, who do not know the grace of God, who would not teach salvation in Christ alone, who would undermine core aspects of the person of Jesus and his work for their own gain. If you flip a few pages back with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to see that what Jude is writing about is something that was actually prophesied just a few years before by the Apostle Peter, who himself was referring back to things that had been written about from long ago. If, you'll, uh, if you ever read 2 Peter and Jude, in close proximity to each other, what you'll find is that Jude is remarkably similar to 2 Peter, probably because Jude was very close to Peter and used him as a significant source in the writing of his book. 19 of the 25 verses of Jude are paralleled directly in 2 Peter. And here's one of those places. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 2, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be, even denying the master, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Do you see, do you see the remarkable uh, parallel that these false teachers in Jude have with those that are described and prophesied by Peter? They are sensu- they're taking sensuality and then liberty and, and running with these things. The way of truth is blasphemed by their lives. They're greedy to exploit. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, the same way Jude says for certain people have crept in who were designated for this condemnation. These are heretics. Uh, Peter says that they're bringing in destructive heresies. And so we ask the question, well, what is heresy? Because it's, it's not just the fact that that person disagrees with me on this doctrine over here, not necessarily. Heresy is a very particular thing. It's a belief or teaching that changes the gospel, that undermines the gospel to a degree that if someone believed that one, they would not be standing righteous before a holy God one day. 
because they believed something that undermined and undercut and, and changed the work of Jesus for them. Our friend Todd Miles, who preached here a few weeks ago, wrote a book on heresies recently, Superheroes Can't Save You. Coolest cover of any book I've ever seen, seriously. Anyway, in there he talks about heresy. And uh, I'm trying to sell books for Todd. I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm not, we don't even have it on our bookshelf yet. So um, He says, though some people think that anybody who disagrees with them about anything related to theology is a heretic, I think we should be more careful with the term. A bad idea or false teaching is a heresy if it undercuts the gospel. Okay. Anybody who became a Calvinist as an adult can relate to the idea of throwing out the term heresy to anybody who disagrees with them about a point of doctrine, okay? And those people should not be on Facebook for several years after their conversion to the Reformed faith. <laughs> but uh, when you need to keep heresy in view, and, and it's here in Jude, it's in Second Peter, it's, it's ideas that are undercutting the gospel. In Matthew 7, Jesus talks about these kind of people who creep in with these ideas, he says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So these are people, they're not just in error, they are, um, they're about error. It's, it's something that they embrace, love, and are running with and trying to bring other people along with them. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or, or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree cannot bear good fruit, or every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. These people were being highlighted by Jude, and he's saying, essentially, look at their lives. What they are doing in their life is showing that Jesus is not their Lord. And if you follow them the way that they're inviting you to, that's going to really, really, really do damage to your soul and have eternal consequences. Which brings us to the second reason for the fight. So the first is because of strangers. The second is because of ungodliness. Because of ungodliness. Friends, there are different types of heresies out there. Not all of them are primarily regarding doctrine. I mean, there's not a single doctrinal rebuke that Jude has for these particular heretics. He, what does he hone in on through the whole, the whole letter? Their lives. Now, you could make the argument that that's a doctrinal discrepancy because what they were teaching was a particular type of heresy called antinomianism, which broken down simply means anti-law. In 1 John 3, he defines sin as lawlessness, and these people embraced lawlessness. We are saved by grace, therefore we can do whatever we want, embrace the sin, run with it, go full-fledged headlong into debauchery because guess what? We're saved by grace, woohoo, grace party. That's, that's antinomianism, okay? Anti-law. Any embrace of sin that uses the gospel of grace as a cover and license for its behavior. We're not talking about our sin struggles here that we all deal with every day. We're talking about the person that says, I have been saved, God forgives, it's okay, I'm gonna do it anyway because after all, God will forgive me. That's antinomianism. And when you put it in those terms, do you not see how prevalent that is today? There's a particular type of antinomianism that false prophets 
usually bring along with them, and it's depicted to us with the word translated as sensuality. These are, these are transformers. They are transforming or perverting the grace of God, which says that you are saved through Christ alone, and when you are saved by Christ alone, you will be conformed into his image by that same grace. They're perverting the grace of God into sensuality. And this particular form of sin is sexual immorality with various stripes. And this is so common. This is so common today. And it looks like this. I can have sex before I'm married because, number one, God knows the culture. He knows this is totally weird and not even doable anymore to save yourself. And so I can do that because God will forgive me. It's okay. Let's do it. Woohoo! I can have sex outside of marriage with somebody else because, man, there's just urges, you know. But God will forgive me. It's okay. Do you know, one of the great sins of Yakima, I'm talking, this is the dark underbelly of Yakima, swinging. You know what I'm talking about when I say swinging? spouse swapping, parties where people will literally get together simply for the purpose of having sex with each other's spouses, even though all of the people in the room are, are fully committed to their spouse. That is what's happening in Yakima. And 10 years ago, do you know what the number one demographic of swingers was? It probably still is, but that's the most recent that I know about it. Middle class evangelicals, members of good standing in their local churches. Nationwide, number one demographic of swingers. Tell me antinomianism isn't at large. And we see why we must contend for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. We do not have license to look at porn because God will forgive. We can't just do whatever we want in the name of grace. That's an abom abomination of grace, not the empowering and transforming of grace. And here we need to be careful because we cannot fall into legalism. There are two edges of this sword. One says we have to do all these things, otherwise we're not Christians. No, abomination. No, it is not by works. But the other is that because we're saved by grace and not our works, therefore we don't strive after godliness. But I read Jude and I get a very different picture. One that says that godliness matters. And that because of who Jesus is and what he has done for sinners like us, because of all that precious love of God that we saw in verses 1 and 2, the calling, the keeping, the blessing, the multiplication of mercy, peace, and love, because of that, I want to go with Jesus, who is my Lord, which means he calls the shots. Grace makes us new and brings about, remember, now remember this, friends, where we fall, even into really big sins, <laughs> so to speak. The same grace that saves us is the same grace of forgiveness that is offered to every single one of us every day. The gospel is for antinomians who would repent of their antinomianism. There is good news here for us. And Paul summarizes well the position in Romans 6 when he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How could we look our Lord on the cross in the face and say, I know it's because of the sin, but I really like the sin. So can I have my cake and eat it too? How do you sing to a Lord like that? No, he was bloodied for a reason, that we may be saved and be changed by his free grace. He says, these people who crept in, 
were designated for this condemnation long ago. And ultimately, somebody who embraces the heresy of antinomianism, who gives no regard to godliness, does not seek to actually follow Jesus as Lord. The cost is great, and it is condemnation, because ultimately, this is another gospel. So, beloved, what will you do? If you have been affected by the grace of God, if if you have been called by God, loved by God, set apart by God, and are being graciously kept by God, what will you do? Because there's only two sides of this equation. Will you heed the call to fight for the faith by which you're saved? Because at the end of the day, the church is the guardian of the truth, and it comes down to your decision to guard that truth, to my decision to guard that truth. Guardians of the gospel. This is the decision to fight that each one of us needs to make. The decision to fight ungodly theology in the church by lovingly correcting error when it creeps in. By lovingly correcting error when it creeps in. Friends, we need to be gracious because not all people with bad theology are the heretics that Jude is talking about. Part of discipleship is growing in the knowledge of grace. And and it's easy to get swept away by bad ideas, which is why Jude, he he looks this church that's dealing with this this destructive, damnable heresy creeping creeping in among them. And he says to them in verses 20 through 23, listen to the love in this. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Be on a rescue mission for the sake of each other's souls when there's bad ideas being embodied and you're aware of it. Show mercy to others with fear. Because this is a high stakes fight. Hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Godliness one of the most precious words in all of existence because we know that the only way to get it is through the gospel. And we know that what that really means is walking with Jesus. So we fight ungodly theology in the church by lovingly correcting error, boldly calling out heresies. And we make the decision to fight ungodly living in the church, which is what Jude was looking at. This is where Christian accountability comes in because ungodliness is a bad sign and we're all of us prone to it, which is why we need each other. And perhaps the greatest way that you could fight ungodliness in the church is by getting up each day, looking yourself in the mirror and thanking God that he saved even you. He saved even me and taking our own sin seriously because what good is it for us to help someone else walk toward Jesus when we have no intention of walking there ourselves? This is where we need to be, growing in godliness each day because of the amazing grace with which God has loved and saved us. As he continues every day, multiplying his mercy and peace and love upon you. You The church has always been plagued by these things, which is why they're written about in the New Testament. It's been plagued by these things ever since. And all of the great creeds and confessions we love and, and embrace A lot of them were born out of these type of fights. One particular really bad fight that happened back in the 300s was why the Council of Nicaea was called, 
from which we get the Nicene Creed. There was a particular really bad heresy going around by a, a, preached by a man named Arius, and uh, it's called the Arian heresy. And we won't get into it. You can look it up if you'd like. But uh, one of my favorite heroes of church history, a man you might know colloquially, colloquially as Santa Claus, uh, was at that council, the, the historic Nicholas, who was a bishop in where today is Turkey. And he was a man who was well known for his generosity to the poor and his love toward children. He gave away his own very substantial inheritance for the sake of the poor. You see why he was one of the most well-beloved pastors of his day, for good reason, why he became such a legend. But he wasn't all jolly stripes and, uh, you know, gifts in a sleigh and reindeer, no reindeer in the picture at all, actually. Um, but he showed up to the Council of Nicaea because he took very seriously this call to fight for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints because he knew that however many good works he could do for however many poor people, it was worth nothing unless they had a true gospel as their hope. And so he actually took up the fist, I'm not encouraging it, and he punched Arius in the face at the Council of Nicaea. Santa's pretty bad. <laughs> and you know, I love him not because I want to go punch anybody, not because I'm going to, I'm not. I don't think you should either. We'll have a different kind of conversation at that point. But because what an embodiment of such a love for Jesus paired with such a joyful Christian life that we would be willing to go uh, from just love and service to to contending for the faith when it is threatened because we know that everything hinges on the gospel. I'd like us to finish today by reading together the common salvation that Jude was mentioning. It's embodied for us in the Nicene Creed, came out of that council. This is, this is the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. This is what we believe. This is why we are Christians because these things are true. Please read with me. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and he ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. If you are here and you have not believed that gospel, have not submitted to that Lord in faith, there's no other business before you except that. This is the faith that God 
gives, the one by which we are saved. There is no other. And for those who have embraced it, it is good to contend together for this gospel. Let's pray.